Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is a fresh talk radio approach promoting happiness from the inside out. Happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. Each week, Lisa shines her light on well-being and global human flourishing by presenting a diverse and proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who have devoted their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Lisa Cypress-Kamen is a widely recognized applied positive psychology coach, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in the fields of sustainable happiness, mindfulness, and integrated well-being. Let's get to it. Here's your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Welcome to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio, broadcasting consciously prepared brain food from the beaches of Malibu, California. Each week, we explore the very serious business of happiness, sustainable well-being, and human flourishing. We are not talking about that annoying yellow smiley face. No, no, no. We are talking about something much deeper and critical to the success of humanity. Authentic happiness is not selfish, egotistical, or narcissistic. In fact, it is essential in order for humankind to thrive. Sustainable happiness is important because it not only elevates our own well-being locally, but also contributes to collective global flourishing. The achievement of a happy life is not only positively good for us, it is constructively good for those around us. In short, happiness matters. Happiness comes from the heart, and this show is most definitely all about the heart. How many times have you said, I wish I could just have another hour or two in my day or an eighth day to my week? Most of us, huh? Today we're talking about time management, keeping and killing time. And my first guest is Ben Dalnick. He is the author of three novels, including his most recent, At the Bottom of Everything. His writing has appeared in GQ, The New York Times, and NPR. He lives in Brooklyn, New York, and is here to talk with us. Hey, Ben. Hey, how are you? I am great and really happy to have you with us because I am eager to learn about the value of the kitchen timer. Yes, yes. It's something I'm very passionate about, oddly enough. I know you are, and and, and that's how we found our way to you. Talk a little bit about your essay and Pomodoro. Um, so the essay is um, about the kitchen timer, um, which started out for me as a technique related pretty specifically to writing. And this, so, the, so there's a well-known, or at least well-known among compulsive-ish writer types technique called Pomodoro, which I, I, I don't, I think the name actually comes from, there's a little tomato-shaped timer that some people use, and I think Pomodoro is the Italian word for Si, tomato. si, senor. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, and the idea with that technique is that you would use 25-minute chunks of time. So you would set a timer for 25 minutes. In that 25 minutes, work absolutely single-mindedly on your novel and then take a break for five minutes. And then 25, 5, 25, 5. Um, and so what I was doing was kind of a um, self-discovered version of that. I would do a half hour or an hour but the sort of point of the technique was to give yourself just a, a discrete block of time in which you would be doing absolutely nothing else and you have the sort of carrot of an equally discrete break coming up. 
Fabulous. The carrot and the stick or the soft stick anyway. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> so how did it help you in the writing of At the Bottom of Everything? Well, it's helped me in the writing of just about everything I've ever written, books, articles, essays, whatever. Um, and the way it does it, I think, is almost every phase of a writing project can feel hopeless for different reasons. That before you start, it can seem, you know, I'm never going to finish, so there's no reason even to get started. And once you have gotten started and you see that you've only written 14 words and it needs to be 2,000 words, it can feel like you'll never reach it. And and then once you're actually well underway, it can seem that it's so flawed and, you know, misconceived that it'll never be fixed. And all of these complicated, convincing-sounding problems turn out to be <clears throat> time-soluble. That if you can just shut the part of your mind up that insists on talking about 12 sides of every issue and just put in the time, time is the crucial variable in writing, I think, then one way or another it'll sort itself out. And so the timer, for me, functions as sort of the mindless but ultimately wise dictator who says to the less wise parts of me, I know you're worked up. I know you don't think this is going to happen. Just put in one half hour at a time and we'll talk later. It's kind of like um, eating the elephant one bite at a time, right? You're, you're giving yeah. yourself a block in which to just create. Exactly. And, and you're not asking anything miraculous of yourself. You, you know deep down that no matter how unpleasant, you're capable of writing for half an hour. And so once you convince yourself to do that, nine times out of ten, you surprise yourself by, oh, I didn't think anything would get done, but in minute 18, it actually turned kind of fun. It's, an, it's amazing how when it clicks in, you know, you just, you just go. And it's not just with writing. I think there are other things that we find ourselves in the flow doing when we just can block out the time to let it happen, you know, to, 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 to let the floodgate open. Yeah. And, and what was a surprise to me, so I started out, as I said, using this for writing. And then it migrated to other things like chores around the house. You know, I, I found it much, much more appealing, say, to clean the kitchen for 15 minutes than just to clean the kitchen. Because cleaning the kitchen with no time attached felt as if it could take forever and how clean does it have to be. But if it's only for 15 minutes, there's kind of a, a gamified aspect almost. How much can I get done while the clock is ticking? And then it, to my surprise, migrated into even things I enjoy. Like I was often finding that, you know, I love to read, as I guess most writers probably do. Um, but when I would sit down in the evening to read a novel, even if I really liked the novel, I would read for a few minutes and then get distracted by something and get up and walk the dog or turn on the TV or whatever. So I started using my timer, and I still do, to actually discipline myself about pleasures, too. You know, really make sure you relish this 30 minutes of reading the novel. Dedicate yourself to it and really enjoy it. I love it. It is a strategy for procrastination and participation. Perfect. Yeah, exactly. It's it's very cool. Tell us a little bit about the the uh, the subject matter of at the bottom of everything. So at the bottom of everything is a novel, um, and it is about 
um, two friends or former friends in their 20s and one of them has perhaps lost his mind and disappeared in India and it falls to the other friend who narrates the book to go find him. So it's kind of an adventure um, with a lot of sort of dark, weird psychology underneath and um, some spiritual stuff. I'm very interested in Buddhism, so a lot of that finds its way into the book. And going back to Pomodoro or the use of the timer to, to mark time itself, I think is very interesting in contract and contrast or consort with Buddhist philosophy. Yeah, yeah, it is interesting because there is such a focus in Buddhism on being in this moment, you know, and not really looking forward to what's going to happen in 30 minutes or an hour or anything like that. Um, but I find it actually helps me to be more in the moment if I, if I know, say, that I only have five minutes left to eat lunch. I'm, I'm going to tend to feel each of those seconds more mindfully, I guess you'd say. So the concept, you know, going back to the use of the timer in, in tasks or in experiences is that by having a subtle awareness of the clock ticking, it actually slows time down? Yeah, and, and, and just makes it more precious. I mean, I guess Buddhists and I would say that the timer is always ticking, whether you happen to have actually set a timer or not. You know, Buddhists, especially maybe Zen Buddhists, are very, very um, forceful about awareness of death being something that will actually improve your life a great amount. That if, if you are under the impression that, you know, you are essentially going to live forever, you have an infinite number of days, then it's very, very easy to fritter away a whole day doing sort of regrettable stuff just because there seems to be so much time to squander. Um, so in, imposing a timer, like imposing a consciousness of death, I think reminds you that you actually only have so many minutes. And, and you, there's an Annie Dillard quote I like a lot which I'm probably going to butcher, but she says, how we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. Yeah. You know, it's interesting you talk about the frittering of time. I find that when I get myself into one of those um, Google raves, you know, or mm -hmm. <laughs> of researching, I mean, I research a lot. I research a lot for the show. And so it's, it's never frittering. It's never, you know, aimlessly. But I see how I can, you know, the time is just stripped from me. Yeah, yeah, there are certain activities. And I would say the internet is probably the gigantic one for people nowadays, in which time just does seem to fall away and not in the good way of flow or focus in an engaged activity, but just a sort of endless pro proliferation, I guess, of one site leading to another and one half-urgent task leading to another half-urgent task and perpetual interruptions, which I think is a big, a big part of how we don't realize how much time we're losing. The concept of using the timer to support engaging more fully in life is started for you as, as a methodology for your writing. And it, and it, it is, um, become pervasive into other aspects of your, of your life. Do you feel that you procrastinate less as a result now? 
I mean, we all, we're all procrastinators mm. of, one, of one order or another, right? Right. Yeah, no, I do think I procrastinate less because I think w- when, when activities are untimed, you can very easily overestimate um, just how daunting they are. That if I've got to write some little essay for you know the newspaper or something, if I didn't know from experience that that takes three and a half hours by my timer, I might think it takes such a huge amount of time that I can't possibly get to it today and probably not tomorrow. And next thing I know, you know, two weeks have passed. We are going to go to a break. Um, But before we do, I want to give our listeners the places or the names and places where they can find you to connect. Um, Your website is? Yes, just my name, bendolnick.com. And on Facebook, the page is Ben-Dolnick. And on Twitter, your handle is at Ben-Dolnick-Books. When we come back, let's talk a little bit more about killing and keeping time, the uses of the um, Pomodoro, the tomato timer, and other timers, you know, other methodologies and ways that we might be able to harness our time in a more happy fashion. Here come the tunes. We will be right back, and that's a promise. We know that life is tough and that happiness can and does live along with adversity. We'll be right back to explain how on Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen on toginet.com. Like us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and on Twitter at HH Talk Radio. Lisa returns with more of Harvesting Happiness following this short break. Happiness is an inside job. Wear the message on t-shirts, baseball caps, sterling silver designer jewelry, and more. Please visit our online boutique at www.harvestinghappiness.com. Are you or do you know a returning U.S. military man or woman in need of restoring joy in their lives? Did you know that our nonprofit, Harvesting Happiness for Heroes, offers stigma-free combat trauma and post-deployment reintegration programming? Check us out at www.hh4heroes.org. That's HH, the number four, and heroes.org. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Lisa Cypress Kamen has made her first ebook, Got Happiness Now? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, available at no cost to everyone. Unwrap your complimentary copy now by visiting www.harvestinghappinesstalkradio.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen on Toginet, the show dedicated to promoting happiness because happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. So let's get back to it. It's Harvesting Happiness on Toginet.com. And now back to your host, Lisa Cypress Kamen. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, we are talking about the preciousness of time. Killing time, keeping time, 
and the very constructive uses of the old-fashioned egg timer. My guest is Ben Dolnick. He is the author of several novels, and his most recent is At the Bottom of Everything. He has written for GQ, The New York Times, and NPR, and we're talking about how the use of a a timer, really an old-fashioned timer, can help us become more mindful, can help us become more constructive and productive. And Ben has some interesting um, timer challenges for our listeners. Yeah, well, there I, I use it in so many different ways that it's um, almost hard to think of specific ones. But I, for instance, I so so lately I set myself a challenge of seeing if I could be consciously grateful for one minute a day which really doesn't sound like much, of course. So I set my timer for a minute, and then I will just conjure up something. You know, I'm grateful to be living in a relatively safe place. I'm grateful for my dog, whatever it is. And to really, you really feel the contours of a minute, how long that can be, and how hard it is to sort of sustain an actual palpable feeling of gratitude. It builds the muscle in a way that I think it wouldn't if I just said, oh, yeah, I'm grateful for that, and then went on with my business. Um, I also find it really helpful in a lot of um, physical exercise things that I'll very often, you know, be on a uh, Stairmaster, say. My gym just got these new complicated stair climbing machines, and initially my feeling always is, oh my God, I can't possibly do this. This is impossible. And, but if I tell myself, okay, it may be impossible, but you can do it for two minutes. You know, (laughs) you can do anything for two minutes. And once you've hit the two minute mark, something tends to happen where your body has sort of accepted, okay, fine, we'll do this. That I, I find in nearly all activities, it's those if you those initial five or ten seconds where you're balking like a donkey, but if you can push through, so something good tends to happen. I love some of these examples because I too am a, a timer user. I uh, use my phone timer for lots of fun different things. I know that one is not supposed to set one's clock to meditate, mm. but I use it for meditation. I use it uh, to remind me right before the radio show, I'll try and, of course, clean my house, tidy my house and my kitchen before I go on the air. So I'm setting the timer uh, to allow a few minutes window before I sit at at, at my desk in the home studio to to record. And it's funny, like I I come and I sit down. I'm like, wow, I really did a lot in those seven minutes. Unbelievable, you know? Yeah, there's a feeling of weird pride in in seeing what you can do in in just a, a very you know a chunk of time that you might have spent watching a set of TV commercials or something. Yes, and you know I I because I work with a lot of clients who are going through various stages of healing from addiction or trauma recovery. I talk about the constructive uses of the timer for whining. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. like if you really, you, if you really want to do this, like just set your timer for five minutes and rant, go for yeah. it. Yeah, exactly. And and I know that's been very useful. Say in, um, I've I've read about using worry time for people with anxiety problems. You know that if you tell yourself, okay, from three to three fifteen this afternoon is my worry time. That is when I'm going to do all my worrying for the day. 
surprisingly, your mind is willing to do that. It'll sort of be quiet for the for most hours as long as it's assured of that particular feeding later in the afternoon. Yes, yes, that we get, we're going to give air time to the parts of ourselves that cause us distress because I think that those parts are important. You know, they need to have a voice. We shouldn't yeah. just be swallowing it. Yeah, if they're not given at least some period, then they will sabotage the entire channel. Um, but, but if you give them their little, you know, window of time, they, surprisingly, they tend to be pretty content with that. Yes. I mean, there are other ways that one can constructively use the timer, such as stirring risotto. Of course. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, really, it's quite a methodology, right, to get it down. Grilling steaks. Absolutely. All, all manner of cooking things. I find the, you know, frying a perfect egg takes precisely 90 seconds, not ruining your pasta by setting the timer for eight minutes. Yeah, without it in the kitchen, I would, I would be completely hopeless. Yes. I mean, the, the, the uh, initial purpose of that timer, I think many moons ago was before all of these stoves had timers built into them, right? So everybody's house had this separate little device. In mine, it was that white um, horseshoe-shaped um, little, like a, mm -hmm. an alarm clock, and you would turn it, and, and my mom would time things. Yeah, yeah, me too. I grew up with one of these kitchen timers, ignored in the back of a drawer, never suspecting how important it would become to me as an adult. So it, really, it's the reframe of the relationship with time that is at the heart of what you're speaking, I, I think. Yeah, it is. And, and one, of, one of the more useful and, and pervasive um, timer functions for me is in limiting my daily time online. That I, I, I try to spend an hour only online, so I have a timer going from the time I wake up in the morning to the evening that I sort of hit like a chess clock every time I'm online. <laughs> And, really? Yeah, and it's it's astonishing how uh, careful you have to be because that, that that will just you you can easily easily use up so much more of your day online than you do in these activities that you really value. Yes, the internet can be the rabbit hole. I was at a conference in Cuba a few weeks ago, a psychology conference, and they have very limited internet there, and you have to purchase. Like the old-fashioned phone cards, you know, mm. when, they're, when they're phone booths, you would, wow. you know, put in a code and it would let you call out. This is the, the system that they're using in Cuba. Mm. And uh, you could buy one hour of internet time for the equivalency of two U.S. dollars. So I challenged myself, because I would only go on about every other day, to get everything that I needed done in 30 minutes so I could stretch the card for two days. I mean, it was kind of a game against myself, but it was fun. And yeah. I did it. Yeah, it sounds great. And, and, and it's amazing how automatically you prioritize when you really do have that ticking clock that you know, you don't really need to read this 11th article about what does Trump mean. So when you only have the, uh, this particular number of minutes, the emails that you really need to send, the things you really care about learning sort of magnetize to the front and the rest kind of falls away. Exactly. And, and, and it heightens the awareness. It makes one more conscious 
of one's actions and and presence you know just like what am i doing how am i accomplishing it and i and i need to move through this mindfully you know very much aware of what one is doing but nonetheless it it, it needs to be bracketed so i can go on to the next thing yeah yeah time is kind of the basic bewildering aspect of our lives that we are perpetually moving through often with much, much less awareness than I think it deserves. And when we're dealing with distress, you know, many of our listeners are, you know, are, are going through things that listen to the show. And I, and I love to say, it's like, you know, how do you want to spend this moment? You know, do you want to be right? Do you want to be happy? Do you want to be worrying about what has happened or what will happen or enjoy the gift of the present. Yeah. Yeah. One of um, a writer I like a lot named David Foster Wallace, who oh, yes. un- unfortunately killed himself, but he, so he struggled a lot with depression, addiction, all sorts of things. But he wrote somewhere that no individual moment is intolerable. And I find that very useful to think about often that, you know, I'll, I'll, be upset about something or, I don't know, in some physical pain for some reason. But if I can remember that you never have to experience more of it than a moment, that that's useful somehow. You know, there's a that John, I think it's in Full Catastrophe Living, where John Kabat-Zinn has a chapter called You Only Have Moments to Live, which at first is sort of an arresting, gasp-inducing title. But of course, it's true. Yeah. And it, it, it is, and it's what we make of those moments. And I think you're right about that. You know, we can tolerate anything mm-hmm. for sixty seconds. Yeah, yeah. And if if that seems too much, tolerate it for one second, and yeah. then you just for the next. Yeah, it's. I think that is why um, in in a treatment, I have never been in treatment for addiction or anything, but I gather that a lot of what they teach you or or what is very helpful to people is breaking time into these discrete chunks that instead of imagining a whole life of sobriety and how hard that seems, imagine an hour of sobriety and see if you can just get through that. Yeah. And it's imagine an hour and an hour of anything that one is not used to can become very, very scary. So it is this concept of breaking it down into, into little bits, into the moments, into the seconds. And then, maybe we get to the place where we don't need to keep track anymore. We can just be, I mean, maybe that is the nirvana, right? Yeah. I mean, at some point, usually in my books, I'll have been doing my timer stuff and, you know, every day time timed, but I will at some point get so engrossed in the task that I'll realize, Oh, I forgot to set my timer and I've been sitting here for three hours. So, so yes, sufficient with sufficient discipline, I think, you can usually cast off the need for discipline altogether, <laughs> at least for a time. We, speaking of time, we are nearly out of it. And I want to give our listeners the places to visit to learn more about you, your books, especially the new one, At the Bottom of Everything. Your website is bendolnick.com. On Facebook, you can find him at ben-dolnick. And on Twitter, that handle is at Ben Dalnick Books. Hey, Ben, thanks for joining me uh, and sharing about the art and science of the old-fashioned kitchen timer. 
It was a lot of fun. Thanks for it, having me. Yeah, indeed it is. Thanks for being with us. Here come the tunes. We will be right back. We know that life is tough and that happiness can and does live along with adversity. We'll be right back to explain how on Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen on toginet.com. Like us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and on Twitter at HH Talk Radio. Lisa returns with more of Harvesting Happiness following this short break. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Lisa Cypress Cayman has made her first ebook, Got Happiness Now? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, available at no cost to everyone. Unwrap your complimentary copy now by visiting www.harvestinghappinesstalkradio.com. Like what you hear on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio? Subscribe to us on iTunes and get your weekly dose of joy downloaded free and easily to your computer or portable device. That's Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio on iTunes. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen on Toginet, the show dedicated to promoting happiness because happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. So let's get back to it. It's Harvesting Happiness on toginet.com. And now back to your host, Lisa Cypress Kamen. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download and share this podcast. Why? Because sharing is caring. It's kind, it's free, it's legal, it's available 24-7, and we're talking about harvesting healthy habits for the good life. And my next guest is Amy Johnson, PhD. She's a psychologist and coach who works with clients worldwide through individual coaching, workshops, and retreats. She is the author of Being Human, Essays on Thought Mirrors, Bouncing Back and Your True Nature, as well as The Little Book of Change, The No Willpower Approach to Breaking Any Habit. Johnson has been a regular featured expert on The Steve Harvey Show and Oprah.com, as well as The Wall Street Journal and Self Magazine. She devotes a large portion of her coaching practice to help people understand the psycho-spiritual principles that explain all human behavior and helping people end their unwanted habits. I am excited for this conversation. Welcome, Amy. Thank you for having me, Lisa. I'm happy to be here. Oh, it's a pleasure. Well, this is going to be an interesting conversation because we're talking about willpower versus personal power, I think. Yeah, yeah, that's a great distinction. And you have a a, a no willpower approach and that really say that permanent lasting change can occur for most people. Yeah, definitely. You know, it's, um, we're so focused on working hard, (laughs) trying hard, willpower, discipline, what we do, even what we think, you know, like it's just, it's just the way that we've all been kind of brought up and just the way we've all been pointed is where we're empowered and we're in charge. And there's a lot of good in that. But I think when it comes to really deep foundational lasting change, kind of scrambling around at that, you know, discipline, willpower. It, it's kind of like like what you do, the tricks and all of that kind of stuff, the techniques. 
it's really kind of the surface level. And so, you know, and sometimes it's helpful and sometimes it works. But what I see really, really help lead people to permanent change, like I'm talking about like a sea change, like you see life differently. And suddenly something you used to mindlessly do just doesn't even occur to you anymore. That kind of change tends to come through insight, through something that's deeper than just working hard and doing things differently. Well, you know, as I was preparing for the show, I was thinking about you, your book and the talking points and, and the work that I do, because I work a lot with, with addiction. And I was thinking, well, when you look at a 12-step model, where you look at some of the addiction recovery programs, the, the, the surrendering of the addiction over to a higher source or God or whatever, whatever your, that source is, that higher power, um, is one of the first steps to the healing. And I was wondering how this relates to what you're speaking of in your book. Yeah, that's a great point. I think it, I think it is really similar. It's, it's just kind of coming to have that understanding that this is a piece of the understanding at least is that there's something bigger than us that's running the show. And as much as that's like so obvious <laughs> in some ways, it's very easy for us to forget that. And I think ironically, especially when we find ourselves in a situation that we aren't happy with, you know, in a habit or an addiction or something, it's kind of our first impulse to to work harder and figure it out ourselves with our own little minds, you know, and and to be able to see, wait a minute, all this running around, we end up kind of running like hamsters on a wheel and really getting nowhere and sometimes getting even deeper into the problems and wondering why nothing's working, you know, and just to take that step back and, and get a bigger perspective on things and say, yeah, okay, there's something bigger that was helping me before I had this addiction that was running a lot of it that continues to help us and run a lot of our lives for us. Maybe it's time to look toward that a little bit. Uh, great point. And, and and I'm thinking of areas of addiction, not just alcohol or drugs. I'm thinking of, you know, gambling addiction, pornography, shopping, um, eating, which we're going to get into in a minute with um, your personal experience. But these are all things that are manifestations of something much deeper. It's not just about the lack of willpower. And I put the lack of willpower in air quotes and, and I'm smiling as I, as I do this, um, that is, uh, letting these, uh, um, issues run rampant. Yeah. Yeah. I think it has nothing at all to do with willpower, <laughs> oddly <laughs> enough, you know, and that's what everyone blames that, that we all want to kind of make it personal about ourselves, but you're right. It is something deeper. And I don't even know if we can boil it down to what the deeper thing is. But for me, you know, one of the things it really is, is kind of misunderstanding and fearing our experience. So when we don't feel well, and that's, I mean that very broadly, when someone's anxious or, or worried or insecure in whatever way you can imagine, it is our nature to do something to feel better. And Again, that's very broad and vague and it can apply to anything, but that's when you go online and start shopping or you start gambling or you do something and your brain is not very wise, but it's very smart and your brain says, ooh, this felt better. It took her mind off the anxiety for a minute. She went and bought some shoes. Well, maybe we should bring that idea up a little bit more, (laughs) you know, and this is (laughs) a super simplistic way of talking about it, but honestly, it's that simple sometimes and from there a habit is born and when we don't or an addiction is born and when we don't understand 
that, you know, it's just like, oh my gosh, now I have this problem too. And I need to go to this program or, or this therapy. And, and it just, you can see how it kind of snowballs really quickly. But when we start to have some understanding of our feelings, especially the less comfortable ones, that they move through us, that they're safe, that we don't have to take our thinking so seriously, then that whole downward spiral doesn't have to happen. It's funny, yesterday I was working with a young man who was being treated for drug addiction and he was talking about his feelings and his fears and, you know, he came in, into the office kind of a jumbled mess and he's describing all of this and I turned to him and I says, you know, they're just feelings. <laughs> it's just a feeling. You're, you're assigning like a whole load of value to this thing that is really no more than a little bubble passing through your brain. And that's where you're attaching your interest to in the moment. Exactly. Exactly. And it's just such a misunderstanding. It's such a universal misunderstanding. And, you know, even you and I can talk about this and we can tell other people this, but of course we get caught up in our bad feelings too at times. But, but for people to start to just get exactly what you said, just kind of know it's just thought, it's just feeling it, yeah, it feels really powerful when it's moving through us, but it's moving through us. It's like clouds passing through the sky. You know, it's, it's self-correcting and it's totally safe. However, I, I agree with you and however, that for some of us or for all of us at some point in time, we become so focused on that one cloud or that one wave or that one gust of, of wind that, that, that comes up that we have a hard time letting it pass. And when we have 70,000 or so thoughts a day, why is it that one that we attach to? Who knows? I mean, sometimes it's just the one that has the most emotional punch to it. Sometimes it's the one we've been hearing the longest, the one our mom or dad's been telling us since we were a kid. I mean, we don't really know why, but I think the bigger thing is just seeing, you know, I mean, so we all have that, like you said, that happens, right? And when we can kind of see, okay, well, we get caught up sometimes. Some of these feel stickier, they feel more true and more real and more stable than others, but it's all the same. It all operates in the same way. And I think, you know, just kind of starting to see it that way, it, it at least kind of relaxes us a little. And that's where people can start to have insights like, oh, this one feels really big, but maybe it isn't. Maybe this is just how my mind is experiencing it. Now, to me, I know this seems perfectly obvious, perfectly clear, perfectly reasonable, and, and it works. And it's so simple that I can also imagine listeners and, and, and clients that we both work with up and up until a certain point say, you know, it's so simple that it's silly and it's not going to work because it's yeah. not layered with this whole how-to program. Right. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> it's so we're not used to simplicity. And the thing is, I think truth, like big truth is simple. It's always simple. And minds, human minds, every one of them, this is not a personal flaw that anyone has, human minds complicate things. We're too darn smart. I mean, our minds are just so used to thinking and thinking and solving problems that it even will create a problem just to have a problem to solve, you know? And so that's why it's kind of, um, I think it's kind of good to know, okay, let this 
let this get in beyond your intellect because your intellect, every one of us, we're just too smart. Our intellect is, is going to complicate it and make it into a big thing, you know, but, but the truth is simple. Yeah, the truth, it is. The truth is very simple, but talking about bringing up a problem, you know, to give the, the mind something to do. One of the, the tools in positive psychology practices that I, that I work with is, you know, asking questions, that it's being in that state of curiosity and asking questions that actually occupies our brains in a positive way. And this really speaks to what I think you're talking about. You know, that, that we're used to it being in a negative loop, you know, in, in, in the case of ending unwanted habits and, and having self-control or having, you know, willpower. But the reality of it is, is when we're occupying our brains with healthy matter, you know, healthy thought, we have a better chance, I believe, at, at, at managing yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense for sure. Um, and and sometimes I think it even goes beyond, um, you know, sometimes it completely makes sense in a moment to ask those questions and to start kind of turning the tides of where our brain is headed. And other times, I, I think for people like the brain just kind of settles down altogether. And that, like we talked about surrender, that deeper place that's bigger than our brain, just our common sense, our wisdom, our well-being that's all kind of there when the brain's sort of quiet in general. We are going to gracefully dance off to a break. And when we come back, we'll carry on the conversation to learn more about Dr. Amy Johnson. Please visit dramyjohnson.com. On Facebook, that page is, is it Amy Johnson? Yeah, it's Dr. Amy Johnson on Facebook. Do- Sorry, on my notes, it's not there. Okay. On Facebook, the page is Dr. Amy Johnson. And on Twitter, the handle is at Dr. Amy Johnson. And once again, the book is The Little Book of Big Change, The No Willpower Approach to Breaking Any Habit. Here come the tunes. We'll be right back. We know that life is tough and that happiness can and does live along with adversity. We'll be right back to explain how on Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen on toginet.com. Like us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and on Twitter at HH Talk Radio. Lisa returns with more of Harvesting Happiness following this short break. Are you or do you know a returning U.S. military man or woman in need of restoring joy in their lives? Did you know that our nonprofit, Harvesting Happiness for Heroes, offers stigma-free combat trauma and post-deployment reintegration programming? Check us out at www.hh4heroes.org. That's HH, the number four, and heroes.org. Like what you hear on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio? Subscribe to us on iTunes and get your weekly dose of joy downloaded free and easily to your computer or portable device. That's Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio on iTunes. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen on Toginet, the show dedicated to promoting happiness because happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. So let's get back to it. It's Harvesting Happiness on toginet.com. And now back to your host, Lisa Cypress Kamen. 
Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. We are talking about the little book of big change, the no willpower approach to breaking any habit with Dr. Amy Johnson. Amy, prior to the break, we were talking about the nature or the perceived nature of willpower and that we're told that we just lack willpower to end um, unwanted habits. And what you're speaking to, and I really, really love, is going beneath that sense of control, you know, sort of tapping into what is, allowing our thoughts to just percolate, bubble through, and move on and make room for the next one, surrendering into a process or a place that is higher than ourselves, and in doing so, reclaiming some of our personal power. Mm -hmm. And you have a very interesting and personal story about how this helped you. Yeah, um, and it's helped me in many ways, but in kind of the biggest, most notable way, um, I was struggling with a binge eating habit for uh, eight years, the better part of eight years. And like a lot of people, like I'm sure most of your clients, most of my clients, I had tried everything. I mean, any kind of therapy that came out, I was trained as a psychologist. <laughs> I, I tried to do my own therapy. <laughs> Every self-help book I had been reading since I was like a teenager, um, alternative method. I mean, anything you can imagine, right? Tons of willpower, tons of discipline. And I'm a very disciplined and, and full of willpower kind of person. <laughs> and what I was seeing is that it's kind of making it worse. It was like the more that I would feel completely powerless over these urges to binge eat, um, and the more I tried to fight those urges and sit through them and white knuckle it and tell myself stuff and do stuff, the worse it got. And sometimes, you know, sometimes I, like anyone, sometimes I could hold out for a little while, but if I would eventually give in, then I was just flooded with this big rush of, oh my gosh, well now what? I mean, I clearly am like, I can't do this and I've tried everything and you know, you know the story. And so, um, I, I came across some of kind of what we're talking about, some of this bigger understanding, um, first sort of just about the brain, you know, and just that we have this part of the brain that's, that's just very, very easily conditioned and it's just a machine. Our whole brain is just, I mean, it's an amazing machine, but it is a machine and it's really kind of easy to understand in a lot of ways when we think of it like that, you know, and look at the ways that it's very reliable and consistent and how it gets so conditioned so easily and why things are so habitual and that when we kind of understand that, we don't have to let it pull us around so much and sort of also combined with some of these bigger spiritual principles that again, like as human beings with these brains that take to, tend to take center stage, we can see what our mind is doing. We could see how our mind is giving us urges and insecurities and fears and all of this feeling and everything. It's all coming through our brain, but it's all moving. And when that, and it's all temporary, and there is nothing real about it because it's there. We feel it. It's real in that moment, but then it goes. And, it, and like you said earlier, new thought comes in. It's constantly recycling. And when we can kind of let that settle down and see that underneath that, that's where kids live, right? They still have all this thinking and emotion too, but they're not all caught up in it. It just goes through them and then they're just out in life and they're just living life resilient and doing what occurs to them. And we can do that as adults too. So as I started to see that, I started to feel more and more comfortable with my urges and I didn't have to move on every suggestion my brain gave me. And, and my habit went away quite quickly. And so now, um, you know, I've studied these principles that much more and, and share them in my book and with clients. 
What are some other client stories that you can share about their experiences? Yeah. Um, I mean, there's some great, great success stories and, and really the the common theme tends to be really similar to my story, which I'm sure is just a common theme for a lot of people is having tried everything, having kind of gotten in our own way innocently. And we don't do this on purpose. It's so innocent, but we just, we have a problem. We see it as a problem and we're going to fight it and we're going to work harder and overcome it, you know? And so, so having clients come in that have been struggling sometimes with habits, wide range of habits for decades and see, wait a minute, I'm actually healthy. Like that hasn't occurred to some people in years, if ever, wait a minute, underneath all of this thought and problem and fix it and solve it, I'm healthy. I don't, I, no one was born with habits. We weren't born with this stuff. We learned it. And when that learning just quiets down, we're right back to our health. And that learning quieting down, like our minds quieting down is something that isn't, you know, it takes a little insight. It takes a little practice because we're so used to running at a high speed, I think, mentally. But once we start to see, oh my gosh, there's an amazing, safe, wonderful, wise place in there in every single person under that habit and under all that thinking, it just, our minds tend to quiet down more and there's just a space in there that grows and, and our health is right there. So, so in terms of client stories, you know, they, when they see, wow, you mean I'm healthy, I'm closer than I think, things start to change really quickly. Well, I, I think that for somebody who is severely addicted or whose life has imploded as a result of these behaviors, I, I would think that this would be harder for them to embrace. I mean, I completely agree with the principle of it, but how do you begin to help somebody access that, that uh, to begin to have a willingness to feel or uh, a willingness to experience their lives or occupy their lives? Because I think that's what happens with these behaviors is we have a moment of discomfort and us humans are um, uh we're pleasure-seeking missiles, right? We're driven for pleasure. We're, we don't want to have pain and suffering, and yet the, the, the pain and the suffering and the discomfort is part of being alive in the human experience. And so I, I, what I see from this angle is having people begin to gain trust of themselves, that they can actually do this, that they can occupy their lives and, and, and feel, learn to begin to feel again without having to numb. Yeah. And I think, um, it seems like that comes, that comfort and that willingness and, and stepping into that really kind of comes with some understanding. So there's just so much misunderstanding about our thoughts and feelings, you know, just kind of in the world. And, um, when people kind of see, really kind of get a feel for how, wow, it really is like weather. I mean, that's not just a nice metaphor. I mean, it, it honestly works in that way because because we're so used to feeling stuff and, and we identify with it and it feels like us. And it's so, it's really, really hard to tell someone, oh, just sit with your feelings when their feelings feel like they're personal and there's a reason for them, you know, and all that kind of stuff. So I think it for me and the work I do with people, it starts with really understanding that, that we are healthy by nature and that when these feelings come in, they don't signal a lack of health. 
it's just emotion. It's just energy. I mean, that's kind of coming through us and taking form and then going back. It's like waves, you know, they come up, a wave comes up, crashes on shore, and then it goes back to source. And that's essentially how our experience is. And it's not as meaningful as we think. And it's not as scary. And I, I don't know, I see like when people start to get a feel for that, they tend to get it pretty quickly. It doesn't mean it's not painful and uncomfortable for a little while. For sure it is, you know, but getting that understanding goes a long way. And what you're sharing really is a very Buddhist-like in principle. I think so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, non-attachment, practicing non-attachment to those thoughts and emotions that come, um, bearing witness to ourselves and not getting too um, connected or riled up, you know, or reactive to what it is we're witnessing and allowing life to move through us while being an active participant in it. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's just... It's it's not as hard as it sounds when we understand that that is the way it works. <laughs> you know, it's it's hard as a strategy. So if you just take someone off the street and say, "Hey, why don't you sit here and be witness to your experience?" That might be really hard. <laughs> you know, it would probably be pretty tough. But Lady when they ha- when they kind of- <laughs> exactly. But when when you're you know a little more relaxed be- because you understand that it is just your experience, it is not you, it is not going to kill you, then it's a much easier. You know, and I, I am laughing because you know, yes, we are not our experiences. We are so much more than that experience or that thought. But it it also deeply connects to our self esteem and our self love. Yeah, you know, I think um, self esteem and self love, they're there. They're just covered up by the other stuff, you know, they're, they're what we are. I mean, look at kids, look at babies. They don't need self-esteem or self-love. Like we're born with that stuff. It just gets covered up when we grow up and start thinking so much. Yeah. Well, we are nearly out of time and, and the, the conversation has just blown by so quickly. And the book is just a, a, a delight. And I really do agree that, you know, the principle of, um, you know, we think too much, we're working too hard at all of this. Once again, the book is The Little Book of Big Change, The No Willpower Approach to Breaking Any Habit. My guest and its author is Amy Johnson, PhD. She's a psychologist and coach. She can be found at dramyjohnson.com, on Facebook, Dr. Amy Johnson, and on Twitter at Dr. Amy Johnson. Here are a few thoughts before we part. Happiness is not a destination. It cannot be bought, sold, or traded. Happiness will never invite you to the party. It simply comes down to a choice to show up each and every day in the world with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guests today, Dr. Amy Johnson and Ben Dolnick, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio is produced in collaboration with TogiNet and KBUU and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange. Go out and rock your day. 
Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio with Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Join us each and every Wednesday for a brand new broadcast and continue to harvest your own happiness anytime from the comfort of wherever you are with hundreds of free downloadable podcasts from our libraries on iTunes and SoundCloud. To learn more about Lisa's global practice as an applied positive psychology coach specializing in lifestyle management as well as addiction and trauma recovery services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness, following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen, and tweeting us with the hashtag Harvesting Happiness.